0: This is the Permaculture Podcast, a listener-supported program. Listeners like you allow me to bring a variety of voices to the conversation about permaculture and what we can do to create the world that we want to live in. That includes having David Bilbrey join me as a guest host to provide a different style of interview than my own, which further pushes the edges of what we can learn about a given subject or from a particular guest. If you enjoy guest episodes like this, go to the support to see how you can make a one-time contribution or become an ongoing Patreon member. I'm Scott Mann, and you're listening to episode 1729, Next 7 with Lisa Stokey and guest host David Bilbrey. Since David gives us a nice introduction to Lisa as they begin the interview, let's go ahead and get started, and I'll join you afterward.
1: Hi, this is David Bilbury with EcoThinkit and the Permaculture Podcast. I'm here today with Lisa Stokey. Uh, Lisa is a co-founder of Food Democracy Now, which is a grassroots community dedicated to building sustainable food systems that protect our natural environment, sustain farmers, and nourish families. In 2010, Lisa was honored to be named a woman making a difference by Shape Magazine. Now she's launching an organization called Next Seven. So the beginning of that mission statement is from the Iroquois uh, Great Law of Peace. It says, in every deliberation, we must consider the impact of our decisions on the next seven generations. Next seven is a nonprofit organization dedicated to reorienting our societal focus to the advocacy of ideas and solutions that benefit future generations as a foundation for the societal systems so that they support prosperous and sustained life on a shifting ecosphere. It is the goal of Next Seven to inspire and accelerate our evolutionary path forward by weaving the diverse fabric of our collective societal history into a regenerative future that facilitates a harmonious coexistence with the natural world and one another. Welcome, Lisa. It's great to talk to you finally.
2: Well, thank you. Thank you so much for having me. It's really great to be here, David.
1: So um, we met uh, about a year ago at the Prairie Fest, the Land Institute, and um, yeah. <laughs> the thing I remember about you was your optimism and that you were mm-hmm. sort of a dynamic connector of people. You introduced me to Fred Kershman, and uh, so we've been talking mm-hmm. about doing this for <laughs> ever since I know. then, and due to schedules in yeah. life, uh, well, here we are. But I think the timing is good because you're in the middle of launching this new project, which I'm yeah. excited to hear about. Before we get into that, I'd just like to hear a little bit about your sort of personal origin story and how you you, you know, yeah. became aware of these issues and ultimately became an activist.
2: Yeah, it's been. I we're uh, we're missing the Prairie Fest right now, sadly. That's this weekend, isn't oh, it?
1: And, I, I didn't um, realize that's how much.
2: Oh, <laughs> uh, <laughs> yeah, yeah. I debated. Uh, whether or not to go to that Um, and what a great event, you know, at the Land Institute, Mm -hmm. you know, so many amazing people and speakers and visionaries and leaders come together. So anyone who has not been to the Land Institute in Salina, Kansas for the Prairie Fest, it's a, it's a worthwhile pilgrimage, I would say. So you asked about, you know, my origins, which speaking of Kansas, my origins are in the Midwest, in Iowa. I grew up in North Iowa, And, you know, while my my parents were not farmers, my parents are small business owners, which gave me a very deep appreciation for, you know, the need to support local economies, right? I saw the ebb and flow of, you know, business and, you know, finances and so forth with my parents growing up. But both sides of my family are deeply rooted in agriculture and the farming communities. My grandparents on my mother's side were farmers and they were they were the small farmers that a lot of people think of, you know, when they think of the Midwest, I think, or the way it was. And before the recent shift, we've had to a more industrialized system. But my grandparents, you know, they were dairy farmers. They had pigs. They had chickens. They had geese. You know, they had crops. And, you know, I spent a lot of time, of course, on their farm. And I would say, as I've kind of done an internal focus in myself, just even in recent years after I launched so much of my activism and food democracy now, I've kind of stepped back a little bit, you know, into that time to do some examination of how much of that informed me, right, in my direction in life. And, you know, my grandparents, they were not wealthy. It was always a struggle to make ends meet. And that kind of system, you know, even though they were both very hard workers and my grandfather had to have a second job outside of the farm in order to make ends meet. And so on the other side of my family, interestingly enough, I had an uncle who was also a farmer and he, by contrast, did very well. But he had gone to more of what we think of as an industrialized system of agriculture now. You know, very big farms, big tractors, big combines, you know, the the whole thing, right? Which, of course, as most people now are aware, is facilitated by genetically engineered crops and uh, pesticides and, and so forth. So for myself, you know, growing up in Iowa in that way, I, I guess I got a close examination you know, of the, not only those two systems of agriculture, but also how the system of agriculture related to our health, whether it was something that was truly adding to our health you know by a system that built and regenerated soil and at the very first did no harm or a system that did harm to the waterways, harm to the soil, harm to our future generations you know in that way and of course harm to our personal selves by, you know, you look at Iowa and how much of the harboring do we do just in our own bodies of these pesticides? And I've I've had some opportunity to find that out through some physical testing of one of my children. So it's been an evolving and interesting journey as I've gotten a look at how industrialized agriculture and this shift to a more corporate system with our food has affected our societal systems, affected our geography like in Iowa, affected our rural communities, our economies, our health, our environment, and even our legislative process. So there wasn't really any aspect of life in Iowa that was left untouched by these multinational corporations that, in my view, came in and really took advantage of the beautiful state of Iowa and the rich, rich soil that we had. So I would say that in a nutshell, in a sense, that's really what's informed, you know, my activism and the founding of food democracy now and now the next seven.
1: It's amazing to think about how far reaching these, it, it, these issues go from, you know, the, the basic family farm that was mm-hmm. a staple of America to it's not just about food and it's not just about land, you know, it's these big corporations, multinational corporations that are buying politicians and doing all kinds of Mm -hmm. things that are affecting us on a social and a global economic level. So it's really, Mm -hmm. it's really simple. It's about soil, healthy soil, but then at Mm -hmm. the same time, it's about culture, life, economics, it's about everything in society. And so that awareness is really important and, um, I, uh, in my, my regular day job, there's not a lot of awareness of uh, of the connection there. And I think in mm-hmm. kind of general s- society outside of the some of the circles you and I are in. <laughs> so mm-hmm. making that, you know, known to many more people is certainly a goal of mine. So you had this awareness, how did you move into activism? How did that start?
2: that's a little bit interesting I was actually just recount I was over at a friend's house for dinner last evening and I was just kind of recounting this a little bit because my friends just recently acquired a farm and they're going to start you know hemp production on their farm which I think is you know it's a it's a beautiful way to create truly sustainable agriculture that we have available to us you know here where I live now in uh, Boulder County in Colorado and so they were they were inquiring about this a little bit as well but as I was, I will say that I became an activist. I almost don't remember when when I wasn't in one, one form or another. You know, growing up, I remember very, being very young. My father pinpointed in me as being, you know, the peacemaker. And that was something that just really, that was always something that I've, I've carried with me into my life. And so now that I'm kind of coming full circle to what we were talking about with the Iroquois, it's the great law of peace you know, in every deliberation, you know, we consider the impact of the next seven generations. So I I think I've carried this with me for a very long time, right, throughout my life. But I can probably say when I was about 19 years old is when things started to solidify in my mind of our responsibility, that in everything that we do, we do have, we do have an impact and we are contributing in some way right and so I when I started you know I started buying organic food at the new pioneer food co-op in Iowa City you know which is still there and just really amazing co-op there and for me when I started being more committed to buying organic food it was because of its contribution to the health of the planet and I thought what I buy I don't want to be responsible for putting pesticides on the land or having farm workers exposed to pesticides. And I want to support farmers that are wanting to do the right thing and, and nurture our soil and protect the seed supply and our water supply and so forth. Right. So that was really my small contribution, right. It was with my dollars and buying that food. And then when I got to be in my early twenties and I, and I began to have children it just became that much more important to me that my children, eat organic food. And I, cause just knowing what I knew about later on genetically engineered organisms that were not tested for safety, you know, in our food and pesticides and, and so forth. And I just, I couldn't justify exposing my children to that. So I started driving two hours one way to another co-op, The Wedge in Minneapolis to get food. And I did that for 20 some years until I moved here. So being where I was in Iowa, I was kind of known as the organic consumer. I was like the one. <laughs> 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 and people just, they didn't kind of understand it. My brother's friends would kind of mock me a little bit. they just. I look back now and it's, it's kind of funny, you know, how it just was like such a far out concept, right? And so I thought, I'm not leaving here anytime soon. You know, life circumstances had, had kept me there where I was, which is fine. It's a very nice community, very nice hometown where I grew up. But I really did want access to that food. So I just read a book actually by Woody Harrelson, and it was called Go Further. And in that book, I was introduced to a man who's actually a good friend of mine now, and we've stayed good friends over the past decade or so. His name is Joe Hickey, and he was just an average guy. And he came to understand the connection between the founding of this nation, and actually hemp production. In this book that Woody put out called Go Further, Joe recounted in there his journey, and I encourage everyone to read it. It was very inspirational to me, of someone just doing something, right? Just from where they were at, that they didn't have any kind of organization or designation or request by anyone, just their own volition where they saw they could make a difference. And through Joe's journey, he came to start the very first legislation that in Kentucky that allowed hemp to be allowed in this country. And now here we are today. So that was an inspiration to me. I thought, you know, I can just do What I can do where I am. And so I did. And so I just started having like these lunches on Earth Day and just starting to introduce people to organic food and locally produced food. And the first year we only had 15 people come and the next year we had 30 and the next year I had 60 and the next year I had 75 and it just kept growing and growing. Right. And it just, it was something that people found within them that that they didn't know that they were missing in their lives. And so I started doing those events with Paul and Phyllis Willis and Paul's uh, and they're founders of Nyman Ranch Pork Company, which a lot of people are familiar with. Um, Nyman Ranch raises animals sustainably on the land with no subtherapeutic drugs and humanely treated animals. And we did that and it just really grew from there. And then in 2007, I met David Murphy And he was also, you know, an an Iowa kid, grew up in Iowa and had gone off to college and lived his life in that way since leaving Iowa when he was a teen. And he started to come back full circle to his roots in Iowa. And we found a lot of commonality in what we deeply cared about, what was happening in rural America and agriculture and to the land. And so from there, we started Food Democracy Now! in 2008 Actually, in 2007, I'll back up, we organized a summit called the Food and Family Farm Presidential Summit. And at that summit that uh, we organized, we had Barack Obama, we had Joe Biden, Hillary Clinton, John Edwards, and many other politicians come and speak to the family farmers and Iowa Farmers Union about their rural agenda. And uh, encourage them to shift their platforms to benefiting that of rural America. And so from that work, we, you know, we're working with the Obama administration, helping them to see from this perspective. And at that summit, Obama promised to label genetically engineered foods, actually. And we got that on camera. And from there... With other organizations across the country and some really good organic companies. We started the ballot initiatives in 2012 in California to label genetically engineered foods. We just really kind of rode this wave and also had a part in initiating that wave too, you know, which I'm very honored to have done that work and raising the awareness on this along with many other really amazing activists and leaders. And here we are today. <laughs> so that's kind of an abbreviated version of my activism, but that's kind of where where I started.
1: That's amazing. You got all had all of those high level politicians right there in Iowa and were able to affect yeah. change. Yeah. One of the things that came up after we met in September was the election. <laughs> and then right. we spoke yes. after the election. And so it caused you to think a little bit about the path you were going on and mm. how you mm-hmm. felt mm-hmm. Uh, your philosophy mm-hmm. about approaching things on a national mm-hmm. level versus local. Yes. Do you want to talk a little bit about that moment <laughs> in November, yes, December sir. of last year and how that kind of, how you feel the best way to move forward yeah. is now?
2: Yeah, you know, I think I know I'm not alone in people who have been very solid and very engaged as activists in the world. And, you know, I find myself among a really amazing network of people, both in food and agriculture and within politics and and media and so forth. That I think it was it was really an opportunity, right, for a lot of people to do a real assessment of, um, you know, what does activism now look like in a really shifting political landscape? And I certainly don't want to pretend that all of your listeners are either Democrat or Republican, you know, or whatever. And and those lines have, I think, have been blurred for a lot of people, too, right? Especially with this highlighted by this last election. Mm-hmm. But I think, I guess I can say this safely without being too political and just looking at things from a more factual perspective and trying to stay away from any kind of bias. Either way, you know, in looking at some of the appointments, especially as it relates to our environmental and agricultural regulatory agencies, they have largely come from industry. And this was before the Obama administration, during the Obama administration that we were so actively, you know, involved in and petitioning and interfacing with over my time with food democracy now um, and then and after you know during the current administration so i often take the opportunity to remind people of that although people who are active on these issues towards sustainability i will say i think felt a friendlier voice or friendlier administration maybe is the right is the right way to look at it and maybe felt like they had more of a voice in an obama administration I take the opportunity to remind them that there were also a lot of appointments that were very friendly towards industrialized agriculture and it's not just not just this administration and that revolving door that we all think of right between corporate America and and regulatory agencies and so especially seeing that shift the last election getting back to your question it really started to come home to me that where we affect change probably the most is right where we are and where we live, our towns, our communities, our neighborhoods, our own state. And I think that this is not always, of course, but often it's it's overlooked and it's very easy to focus on things nationally. It's very easy to focus on who is in the White House And it's also very easy to focus on, you know, what we feel is against us and is not and is not serving us and is not serving us, you know, as people and is not serving the planet and not serving all of the concerns that we have with climate change, for example. And so, you know, the best way to affect change, I feel, is is right where you are. And for often that's that's even in our own homes. Right and taking that personal responsibility. And that's really where it all begins. And so I began to have more of this focus and I, I came, I brought it home very, very personally for myself and it, uh, that's just kind of what I had to do. So I, I took kind of a big energetic step back in that way. And yeah, and that's when you had reached out to me. <laughs> so I was really more engaged, I guess in my own personal healing and my own personal journey and really asking myself, you know, what is my contribution in the world, and where can I create more peace and more compassion, you know, in my life? And I feel like with food democracy now, my work was with David and pushing that big boulder up the hill, right, to raise the awareness and, and what was happening and the problems. And and now I f- I felt this great shift towards, okay, what are the solutions? It's time to really promote the solutions because, you know, you look at how many people are in this country and in this world and together if, as we reorient our focus, as I made a, a part of the next seven's mission, what if we just shifted our focus right away from the problems and away from our fear and and away from, you know, looking at others and seeing where we feel like they are not serving our best interests and shifted that focus and that energy to instead being active. Right. And what is our best interest and what are the new societal systems that that we can develop as we face the reality that we do have a shifting planet and we do live on a dynamic planet. Right. And so how can we create that foundation and in all of the things that we do and the laws that we make that we are thinking of those next seven generations, which is the part that was actually left out of the U.S. Constitution. The US Constitution, as I'm learning recently, was as its foundation, you know, with the, the Iroquois and the Great Law of Peace. And sadly, that was one thing that was left out of our US Constitution. And I actually didn't really know that until recently. But this is this principle has been a guiding principle for me for a long time in my life. And so I think we can we can enact that in, in all levels. That's my feeling.
1: Okay. So the place you were in when we spoke in the fall, you've gone through this personal sort of process and, and come out of that with this new project, Seven, Next Seven. Is that safe to say? That's, that's kind of yes. the fruit of that. Okay. I wasn't aware of that. I think maybe I've heard a little bit about the law of peace in the past, but um, when you mentioned it, I read the basic statement. It's just resonated so deeply with me. And sort of, mm-hmm. of course it's the same uh, line of thought as the 50 year farm bill where you're just thinking ahead. And yes. so mm-hmm. that just uh, makes so much sense and it feels good. But then you remember, the culture we're living in and how little that that happens on a national level. So yes. first of all, how do you have hope? And how are you with Next7 planning on inspiring and creating change?
2: Well, that's a great question. And that's a big question. <laughs>
1: mm-hmm.
2: And, you know, I will say that it's, you know, obviously the idea of Next7 is like infinitely larger than than myself. And I, there's, there's a really, really great network of people that I'm always surrounded by and, and connecting with and, and doing a lot of really great things in the world. So creating those, those partnerships with those people, of course, is, is key. You know, it's always about having that exponential impact. Right. As we, as we come together, you know, that those, those synergies, you know, that happen. And I think that we are now shifting in our way of thinking, you know, as humanity to realizing that always acting from that place as the individual has not served us. And as Americans, we are kind of taught to do that. That if something is benefiting another, it's detracting from me. And I guess it's my hope that we can shift are thinking away from that and i think the best way for for all of us to be that in the world is to just or to create that in the world is just to be that example right and i find that you talk about how i say hopeful and i think that it's really kind of infectious because that that place is in most everybody i mean there are certainly exceptions but i find hope living in in all people that i encounter and hope is That's a very interesting question to me because I've been on this exploration of hope I would say for probably the last thirteen years. Actually when I very first met Fred Kirshenman, who you've interviewed, you know, through right through my introduction with you Mm -hmm. a year ago. And so I encourage everyone to look that up. Fred is an amazing thinker and just a he really represents you know really solid moral leadership in my experience with him so 13 years ago i didn't i had i'd had seen his film called my father's garden or a film that was about him and his conversion of leaving his farm in north dakota where he grew up to going off and getting his phd and then coming back to the farm and and converting his family farm you know to organic and then biodynamic which is really incredible and when i first met fred i understood what a hero was i actually never really understood the concept of hero which might seem kind of odd but that was always my personal thing i thought i don't really i don't really have a hero and so i always say that he was my first hero and he knows this so if he listens to this i don't think he's gonna be too embarrassed but (laughs) (laughs) he knows this and so when he came to give this talk in my town, I invited him to this. This is kind of the beginning of my activism, if you will, more in my community I invited him to come and give a talk and he He recounted a story in his good friend's book, Wendell Berry: What Are People for? I think it was in this book, I'm pretty sure, and Wendell, as recounted by Fred, said, "There's optimism and there's pessimism, and there's hope." And When you're optimistic, you think everything's gonna be fine. So you just kind of do nothing because you believe everything's fine And so, you know, you just got to sit back and drink your beer and when you're pessimistic in life Your overall view is that you think nothing you do is gonna make a difference And so the result is that you just sit back and drink your beer. <laughs> this is what Fred <laughs> said This is how he recounted <laughs> it, but he said when you're hopeful you act in spite of all of that and he for me defined where it was that i lived and it was in this space of hope and of course in the coming years since that initial meeting with fred that was the campaign on which obama ran right was mm-hmm. on hope and i think that that's what really you know touches us on this deep level right because we never we never know the future right and so how else can we be in the world without acting on that hope? Despite what we see, despite what we feel, hope is really, you know, it's our motivator. And so that's been a deep exploration for myself and informed my my work and my life.
1: So you're getting ready to launch this project. Can mm-hmm. you tell me a little bit more about that and what's involved with the launch? Yeah.
2: Well, I would love to tell you about, you know, our first campaign, our first campaign is around protecting the organic standards, actually. There's a meeting that's coming up. Uh, every six months, the National Organic Standards Board, which advises the National Organic Program, which is under the USDA, they meet every six months in different places around the country. And so over the last few meetings, three to four meetings, I would guess, I've been to the last three to four meetings, it's been debated about you know, the issue of hydroponics, And the reason that this has been debated is because allowing hydroponics in organic is also stating that soil is not required in organic. So for the pioneering farmers of organic agriculture in this country in particular, and of course other countries too, you know, soil is a basis for organic. And, you know, there's just this feeling that sadly in our country, people have come to believe that organic is just about, kind of what it's not, you know, that it's not synthetic pesticides and it's not GMO. And really organic is more about, you know, a system of regeneration. It's about regenerating our soil. It's about protecting our water supply. It's about protecting our seed supply. It's about keeping farmers in all of their wisdom and dynamic connection to the land there as these, what I see is as these, as these reservoirs of great, great wisdom, right, and how we negotiate with the earth, if you will, and how to how to grow food, right, and grow it in harmony in the face of a changing climate, in the face of changing weather patterns, in the face of pests and diseases and so forth. Organic farmers, they are some of, they're just truly some of the most amazingly resilient and creative and solid people that I know. You know, they are the salt of the earth. And so as we support true regenerative organic agriculture, we are also supporting all of that, right? It's not just about not having pesticides in our food. Or if you want to avoid GMOs, it's not just about not having GMOs in our food, right? Right. It's about all of that. And so this vote that's coming up or scheduled to come up um, on October 31st in Jacksonville, Florida, before this board of 15 people, is about... Is soil important and organic? And the farmers that I'm working with include Fred Kirshenman, Elliot Coleman, Dave Chapman, Tom Bedard, Will Allen, Drew Rivers, you know, all of these amazing pioneer and get organic farmers across the country. They see this as the greatest threat that organic has ever faced. And, you know, the way that it was discovered is that Dave Chapman... Organic tomato grower in Vermont. He went to a store where his tomatoes are sold out east. His tomatoes are sold all up and down the, you know, the East Coast there, and um, especially in the Northeast. And he saw a pint of tomatoes like what he sells, but they were two dollars cheaper than his, and they were organic. And he thought, well, how in the world are they doing this? And so he did some investigation. He found out that they were hydroponic. No one knew that hydroponic was being labeled as organic. So in 2010, I'll just back up a little bit more, the National Organic Standards Board decided in an overwhelming vote with only one dissenting, saying that no, hydroponic does not belong in organic because it's not based in the soil. It's just not an organic system. And so the National Organic Program kind of ignored that ruling. First time they've ever done that. And I think the only time they've ever done that, that they've ignored a a vote to implement a vote and a recommendation. And so then some certifiers like CCOF, for example, in California, began certifying hydroponic as organic. And it wasn't discovered until, until Dave Chapman discovered this. And so now it's coming up for a vote again. And so we feel like it's very important for us to activate on this. And some really great partners have come on board, like Patagonia. You know, they see the importance of this. Dr. Bronner sees the importance of this. And so with Next7, we're working to protect organic standards and protect organic farming and organic agriculture for the future.
1: You know, I hadn't thought in quite the detail that you just went through about the difference between hydroponic and and organic, because, yeah, Mm -hmm. really Mm -hmm. the key to health is the billions Mm -hmm. of microorganisms in the ecosystem of healthy soil. So mm-hmm. exactly. just not having pesticides or GMO seeds is not what it's all about. It's a tiny part of it, really. And so it's kind of brings to light how important it is to keep, uh, keep messaging focused in a way that keeps people's minds and hearts on what the actual issue is. Because I mean, that's a huge piece where people don't understand. People think, well, organic is healthier. So I'm going to buy organic and a lot more people mm-hmm. do now. Not knowing what that actually means, not understanding what soil health is and how that affects mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. our water systems and everything else really makes a big difference. So this mm-hmm. is a great opportunity to bring education forward more on what that, what, what, what organic really is and what taking care of and creating and building more soil really does for us. And it's not, as we mentioned earlier, it's not just about physical health of the body. It's about health of the culture and a society.
2: Yeah, yeah, I mean, and you're right. And I, and I bump up against that a lot because we're kind of, are, are, you know, above. I bump up against people, you know, they get really concerned that there's going to be an elimination of hydroponic. And, you know, of course, hydroponic, they, you know, we're not trying to take a battle axe to, to hydroponic growing. You know, it's not that at all. People who invest in and, and grow hydroponically, they have the opportunities to develop you know, their own systems, right? If they want to say this is hydroponic, but it's grown without harmful pesticides, it's grown without genetically engineered seeds. I mean, that's great. But it just it just isn't organic, right? And while we need to be expanding organic, you know, this is this is a time where we really need to be protecting it because it is a solution for us and for our health and for our planet. And you know, within agriculture, it's, it's still, you know, around 1% of overall agriculture and people find that surprising because organic has had such a a great success here in recent years but a lot of the organic you know that people eat really is processed and it comes from the ingredients come from other places other than the U.S. so as we think about where we're buying our food from buying it locally organically grown in the soil that's where our sustenance is and and we're making more of those connections as you alluded to Between the microbial health of the soil and the health of our own microbiome, right? Mm -hmm. And from the soil, we gain those trace minerals, we gain phytonutrients. You know, I think it's just also the vitality of the earth, right, that we get in our food. And, you know, kind of that, that alchemy, really, of just the seed and benefiting from that of a rich soil and clean water and sunlight changing itself into food. That nourishes us it's really a miracle that's the miracle of nature and i feel like we need to continue to foster you know and grow that for our children and allowing hydroponic to be certified as organic at a very practical level it doesn't allow farmers to even compete economically and so in that way you know we really stand to lose organic farmers and we need to be expanding upon this system and Allow that regeneration on our planet and also the carbon sequestration that this type of agriculture allows. So that's one reason that I've chosen personally alongside many, many other leaders and farmers in the, in the country to really jump in full time and make sure that, that that we are able to protect the organic certification.
1: So what can we do <laughs> as citizens to get involved with this and, mm-hmm. uh, and help move this movement forward?
2: Yeah, well, that's a great question. Thank you. org is the website that was started by Dave Chapman and Davey Miskell of Vermont. There's so much great information there for people to read more about this issue and, and the farmers and the people behind it. I would encourage everyone to check that out. There's a link there to send in your comment to the National Organic Standards Board. The comment period is up October 11th. We are hosting rallies all around the country. So I would say if you are in an area where you have a rally, that list is also on that website. We'll probably be expanding those rallies too, I hope. So we have rallies uh, scheduled in Portland, Maine is coming up. We have one here in Boulder that Fred will be uh, speaking at along with Daphne Miller, who wrote the book Pharmacology, you know, connecting the soil health to our human health. Mm-hmm. And let's see, our Full Belly Farm in California and England and Costa Rica and you know all throughout the world you know we're having we're having rallies you know to raise awareness so i would say you know to your listeners if they can join a rally if they want to host a rally and send in their comments right and i will be also launching a social media campaign here very soon too that people can dial in with you know and share with their friends
1: Excellent. Okay. I'd like for a second to circle back to the law of peace. Do you have a a specific sort of uh, language about Mm. that? Like an abbreviated statement about that?
2: Well, I would say that the most abbreviated would be in all of our deliberations to consider the benefit of the next seven generations. And it's an interesting kind of way of thinking about peace because often I think as humans, we are tempted to think about peace also in what it's absent again, right? Mm -hmm. As opposed to what it is. And we think of peace maybe as the absence of war. But when we especially bring it home to, you know, our relationship with ourselves, our relationship with our families, with our neighbors, our communities, with the earth, what does that mean to us? And the most intimate and the best place, in my opinion, to start is with that peaceful relationship with yourself and thinking through, you know, this is getting a little bit away from food and agriculture and activism, but this is where I always try to start this with myself. And am I in peaceful conversation with myself? Am I practicing compassion towards myself? And when we are engaged in those ways, in our own personal relationships, then that extends to, it's, it's like it's a rippling effect, right? It's like that pond. And so when we are peaceful and still in our center, that radiates out into all of our relationships, all of our deliberations, so all of our choices that we make in our lives, in everything from choosing fresh water for, to nourish our body that is that's vital and we think of us as being 70 to 80 percent water right? right how important is that and then when it leaves us in our homes returning it in that pure state back to the earth right not polluting the water where we're at personal responsibility and so for me that's the creation of peace right in the world Mm-hmm. is in our relationship to one another our relationship to the earth our relationship to the water and all of the all of the living beings and when you think about it that's really truly all we can ever affect when you think about it right is our own our own being our own self and when you think about it if most of us or even a good portion of us did that it would be revolutionary would change everything and so that's what I always bring it back to when mm-hmm. I when I personally think of peace
1: right two things have kind of come to light in this conversation one is soil and what organic mm-hmm. means and then the second one is what is peace and both of them are not mm-hmm. they're usually defined by what is absent pesticides GMO seeds mm-hmm. or peace the absence of war but what organics and what peace really is has much more to do with what it is and what it embodies than what is absent and so there is no path to peace without an understanding and awareness of what it actually is and that that rarely comes up in in public discourse and at least in american politics um and so that's a huge insight really
2: yeah that's about thinking of ourselves as creators right and i think we tend to think of ourselves lots of times as Defenders, right? Or survivors, you know, something that's always from the outside in. But when we truly recognize ourselves as creators, right? Creators of our experience, you know, creators of our connectivity, the initiators of our own lives, of our own destinies. For me, that's the shift in focus, right? Thinking of ourselves as, as those creators and initiators, of what you're saying, what it all embodies, right?
1: Right. Well, and just an awareness or a thought that something you do could affect change because there is so much hopelessness. I really love that definition or that clarification between (laughs) optimism and pessimism. Both of them, you just sit back and have a beer, whereas hope
0: uh, Mm -hmm. gives
1: you a power and an energy to take action. And so that's that's huge, and that is what we need, because if you don't believe anything's going to change, and that's very common in American society, especially in the realm of politics, a lot of people for many, many years and probably decades have given up hope that that's going to change anything, then you don't Mm -hmm. do anything, and nothing changes. But the people who do believe, Mm -hmm. do have hope for something, maybe something that's very destructive, (laughs) are continuing to Mm -hmm. do things on an ongoing basis. So something Mm -hmm. will change based on who is doing something. <laughs> so those connected with what's going to actually create a, a sustainable and thriving culture and society in seven generations are those who <laughs> need mm-hmm. to activate if any of us are going to have that future mm-hmm. or our grandchildren great, great yes. yeah.
2: yeah. I think it's important that we kind of shift our focus from, because I kind of, I tell people sometimes when this topic comes up that I was just at a friend's house the other night in Brooklyn and, and, and this came up about the idea of just kind of this apocalyptic thinking, right? And it's easy right now, I think to slip into that very easy. And one thing for me is that I don't own a television anymore. <laughs> you know, I don't have cable you know? yeah. and uh, I, I stay in touch kind of with what's happening, but I don't kind of traumatize myself in a
0: sense,
1: <laughs>
2: right? right? You know, by the, by the mainstream news on television. So yeah. for, but that's been a good tactic for me personally, mm-hmm. but you know, I tell people too, I'm like, when I was in my early 20s, I had a boyfriend who was a singer songwriter. And he wrote a song about me called Apocalyptic Girl. You know, So so I'm no stranger to that, right? I get it. I'm not someone I don't think who walks around with a very unrealistic view of the world. But I also realized that my part of the world where I'm at is is again is really all that I can affect and so it's easy for us to feel helpless and hopeless I think especially when you are paying attention to the headlines but I personally think it's it's vital especially as we think of ourselves as the creators that we are to really begin to act as if Our children can have a thriving future. I think that's one of the greatest gifts that we can give them Mm -hmm. is to not lay down our hope and to engage with one another in a hopeful, communal way. And I'd be lying if I didn't say I don't feel concerned for my children's future Mm -hmm. lots of times. I do. But... I really try to act in a way that's more hopeful because when it comes right down to it, we're human beings that belong to this earth, right? And depending upon what your belief system is about the existence and the purpose of our soul and our spirit and our essence throughout time and infinity, you know, our bodies belong to this earth. And that's where we need to negotiate and create our relationship and our experience. And so when I think about a collapse of society, if you will, because people talk about that, right? Well, right. what if our fossil fuel system disappears? What if our trucking system disappears and we don't have food? What if our electricity disappears? And so on and so forth, right? And my concern has been that this idea of it's me against the world or like kind of that prepper mentality, if you will, that everyone's going to be out to get you and it's survival of the fittest. It's all based upon the collapse of these systems that we really don't need. You know, we, (laughs) (laughs) we have everything we need. We have, we need each other. We need soil. We need water. We need sunlight. We need seeds, right? That's mm-hmm. what we need. And we, together, we can negotiate and create and build all of that, right? In harmony with the planet. So that's a little bit my message, too, to people. I'm like, you know what? If we lose some of these societal systems, worst case scenario, maybe, whether it be through, through disaster or War or whatever it is right that people deal with in the world We still have the means to create and build a you know, a thriving life here on this planet This planet is it knows nothing but abundance Mm -hmm. Right, right? You look at a single seed and the potential of that single seed to produce thousands and even millions of seeds over time nature knows nothing but abundance right and for me it's just up to us to create that partnership with it and nurture it and not poison it and live in communal partnership with it right we have everything we need so that's a little bit too where my hope comes from i look at the earth and the earth gives me hope Mm. you know it's it's strength and it's always solid at its core it's always unwavering at its core Right, right, and it's always regenerating in and of itself, despite what we've done to it. You know? <laughs> right, <laughs> I trust the earth way more than I kind of trust our judgment as mm-hmm. humans, right? But the earth is solid;
1: it's always there. So, forever confused, we can just go back to how do we care for and work in in harmony with the earth, and that's going to take the, take you back to where you need to be.
2: One hundred percent. Yeah. Yep.
1: Yeah, it, it, you know, you reminded me of a, a conversation that Scott uh, had with um, Rob Hopkins of the transition town movement. And he had taken a permaculture design course and had a, was living on a farm with some people outside of town and built this food forest and resilient system. And one day he was sitting up at the front gate and he's like, you know, if things do change and go, um, you know, bad in, in society, unless I'm mm-hmm. willing to stand at this gate with a gun. I'm not going to be safe, even though I have all this resilient food stuff. And so he started the transition Mm -hmm. town movement to really bring resilience to towns and cities and, you know, all of those other systems. Because, yeah, it kind of gets it gets right back down. The disease of modern sort of Darwinian capitalism kind of space right back there in this in the midst of sustainable agriculture. It's like, well, I Mm got to survive. Mm -hmm. I'm going to build my little bubble. But there is no bubble when there's millions of hungry people outside of it um and so that uh and and again this theme came up over and over again at the prairie festival last year Uh, we Mm -hmm. were talking about all these ideas and systems that always came back down to a personal level Mm
0: -hmm. you and Mm -hmm. how you
1: relate to yourself in the world and how you relate Mm -hmm. and us and how we really relate to one another as a community uh -hmm. and that was amazing to me how many times that kept coming back so it's not just about it's not about nutrition. It's not about soil. It's not about pesticides. It's not about evil corporations. It's about how do we relate to one another, yeah, in love and peace, and do what's mm-hmm. best for mm-hmm. each other. Yeah.
2: Yes, it's so true. the The theme of the Land Institute Prairie Festival last year was a homecoming, basically. Mm-hmm bringing it home. And for me, that was really perfect because I hadn't been to the Land Institute for a number of years. And I had been kind of out there in the world doing, instead of going to the Land Institute, if you will, is like I would go to Natural Products Expo, you know, and I I did go to that this year. But, you know, that's a whole other thing. That's like the food that gets into the grocery stores and whatever. And and that's all fine and good and it's a great experience and whatever but for me last year I needed to bring it back mm-hmm. to my roots right and so it was it was very eloquent for me personally and as you were talking earlier about acting more locally and that there's nothing else that the turbulence of 2016 that it represented for so many of us in so many ways and obviously I'm thinking you know I'm thinking more of as a I guess as an American, I don't want to pretend that there's, you know, there's so many other things that people deal with in the world, right, on a daily basis outside of obviously our election cycle. But I think for Americans especially, that was really, it was a tough year last year for a lot of people because a lot of the hate and discord that we harbor in our society was coming to the surface, you know. And Mm -hmm. of course, this year, it's still coming to the surface. And so we're grappling with that, right? What do we do in the face of of hatred and of racism and, you know, murder and and so forth and harming one another? And I really do still feel that the best way really is to practice that personal compassion and in our homes and in our communities and that radical love, if you will. Right. Mm -hmm. Always, always, always returning to that. I personally believe that's what we're here. That's what we're here to do. That's what we're here to learn is that radical love and compassion for one another and ourselves. And everything else is is just a backdrop to <laughs> 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 so learning that.
1: Yeah. Well, yeah. that's beautiful. Mm-hmm. Well, um, it's been really great talking to you today. And uh, that was an excellent uh, way to tie things up. However, if you have anything else you'd like to say in, in uh, conclusion, mm-hmm. um, please, mm-hmm. please feel free to.
2: Yeah. This was a really beautiful conversation, and, and, and I, th- I thank you for that, and thank you for providing the space for that, David. When you've emailed me, you've you've always left me with these really wonderful gems of insight that you've had or, or quotes that you've discovered. And I think that's such a, a beautiful thing that, that we can all learn to do for each other, right? Mm-hmm. It's in when we mine those little gems and, and sharing them, They've, they have made a difference in my day. so. I want to I want to thank you for that and um, yeah just I guess the only other thing is that I will just just reiterate that you know the org is we are launching on the seventh so if anyone wants to check us out we welcome a big large loving community of activism so
0: mm-hmm.
2: it whoever wants to join with us we
1: welcome you with open arms and we'll put that in the show notes as well as the keep the soil organic is keep the soil organic.org
2: keep the soil in organic
1: organic got it okay that yeah, yeah. org yeah org. We'll have it in the show notes as well. Well, in conclusion, I think I will um, just share this quote that I sent you the other day from John O'Donoghue, who, quote, I heard on a podcast uh, on being with Krista Tippett, and I think it's um, true of you, so it's a good quote, but it's lovely when you find someone at work who's doing exactly what they dream they should be doing and whose work is an expression of their inner gift and in witnessing that to that gift and bringing it out that they actually provide an incredible service to us all. And I think you'll mm-hmm. see that the gifts that we are given mm-hmm. as individuals are not for us alone or for our own self-improvement, but actually for the community and to be offered. So that's John O'Donohue, and uh, it's better to hear him read it. <laughs> no, <it's laughs> but, yeah, beautiful. So thank you so much for taking the time. We'll have to do this again, and uh, I'm excited to see what's going to come of all these new initiatives you're putting
0: forward. Thank you. Yeah.
2: Thank you, David. It's been great.
0: And that was Lisa Stokey of Next7. Find out more about her and this project at next7.org. That's the word next, the number 7.org, or by the link in the show notes. In the show notes, you'll also find links to Food Democracy Now!, Keep the Soil Inorganic!, and some of the interviews that David and I have recorded with some of the people mentioned. You can also find out more about David and his ongoing work at ecothinkit.com. Stepping away from this conversation, I'm thinking a lot about what Lisa said regarding peace and personal transformation. As I've been reading Murray Bookchin's The Next Revolution and also his other book, Post Scarcity Anarchism. And in those, he talks about that need for personal transformation, that if we want to change the system, we have to change ourselves first, which is also something that my conversations with Chris Moore Backman, Ethan Hughes, and some others who are interested in peace in the world get to. That we have to be the ones who start this work. And that when you look at the Salt March or the civil rights movement in the United States, very often that was years, if not decades, of personal work before the people who were involved in those projects took any kind of outward action And I think sometimes that what we get into in this just-in-time-got-to-do-it-now kind of mentality that seems to be ever-accelerating the culture, especially in the West, is we just have to do something. And though I think it's important to do, to interact, as we're called on within permaculture, that there's something to be said for going slow, going small, and investigating and observing ourselves and where we can really make a difference. To listen to that voice inside ourselves about what fights we want to fight, which battles are not our own, and to spend our time and energy on what matters. And then as we do so, to be okay with looking silly for being an amateur when we first begin because of time and experience that it takes to become really good at something, but making sure that we do the work regardless of how we look when we do it. And if you're ready to look silly and try something, if you meditated on what matters and now you're just looking for additional resources, definitely get in touch with me. I've got all kinds of little irons in the fire with different projects and things that I'd be more than happy to share not only my successes with you, but also my failures. Learning to speak in front of groups, to interview, to tell stories, to weave together all these disparate parts into a long ongoing conversation about how we create the world that we want to live in, and my own desire to help you find your way through it all, so that you can have that kind of a life and a world too. So get in touch, 717-827-6266, show at thepermaculturepodcast.com, or send me a letter or a postcard. The Permaculture Podcast, P.O. Box 16, Dolphin, Pennsylvania, 17018. From here, the next interview is my conversation with Carl Treen, which also includes an addendum with Jason Gadesky of The Fifth World, where in our own ways, we talk about games and play as learning. So until that next time, spend each day creating that world that you want to live in by taking care of Earth, yourself, and each other.